The book of Mark chronicles the last three years of Jesus here on earth. They were pretty intense years, to say the least. Since meeting John the Baptist, he was faced with temptations in the desert, performed miracles, healed people, gained followers, was transfigured and died a criminal's death, only to be raised from the dead. Why should all this matter to you and me? Join us for the last three. My name is Phil Nicholas. I'm an elder here at Crossbridge uh, Brickle. Uh, Carter is uh, doing something this weekend, and every once in a while he asks me to speak uh, when he's not here, and I relish this opportunity every time I do. So I want to thank him, and, uh, and it's just uh, wonderful to be here with you guys. Uh, I tell you, Wade, um, I pray the gospel goes out. to these people, even their enemies, real hope. Okay, so tonight we're going to talk about a um, story in the New Testament that is like walking on hallowed ground. Uh, I don't feel I have the words really to talk about it, but I'll try. We're going to hear a little bit about big story, little story, little narrative, big narrative tonight. And I want to start by giving you a couple of personal stories. Um, the first one involves my granddaughter, Harper. Harper is four years old. She comes to, uh, she, they live in Pembroke Pines. And when they come to visit, it's quite an event. You know, usually Harper's in a good mood, usually. And when she comes in, She's so excited, because it's usually been at least a week or two since I've seen her last. And she starts running at me. I'm sort of sitting in the back of our room there. And she's running at me with her eyes really wide. And she's yelling, Grandpa, Grandpa. And she's yelling and running at me. And she's running so fast that I feel like if I, if I don't time it just right, there's going to be like a collision. Okay. So I do time it just right, right before she gets to me, I back up a little bit and I grab her and uh, we laugh and I tell her I missed her and I love her. And then, uh, and then we play, we, we play games and stuff. She likes to go get these musical instruments that are in the corner of our house. These are not musical instruments that we play, uh, they're like decorations, but she likes, to, she likes to see us playing them. And she'll go get the guitar and she'll give it to her grandmother who's known as Gigi, my wife Gina. She'll give me a tambourine, she'll take a little drum, and then we'll start the song. Harper loves Gigi, Gigi loves Harper, Harper loves Grandpa too. That's it. Oh, and we go through every family member, we go through Kyle who's sitting here, we go through the dog, okay? It's just wonderful. And uh, we go out back, and we feed turtles and fish and... Uh, she likes to make scrambled eggs with me in the mornings when she's visiting. She calls them eggies. She's learning how to break eggs. She just thinks that's the coolest thing. But you know what? That's uh, Harper's world. She sees a little story. She doesn't see our motivations behind all that. 
She doesn't see our hope for her. She doesn't see our planning that we might do to try to benefit her life. Those are a, that's a bigger story, and she doesn't see that yet. Another story I have is when I was in high school, I was 16, I was on the wrestling team, and we used to practice on Saturdays. And uh, I would be dropped off or I'd drive to the school and I'd go in the main entrance and there's no one there, but the entrance was open and I'd have to walk down this long hallway of classrooms on each side to get to the gym. And uh, so I'm, I'm doing this walk, just walking to the gym and I stop and I look and there's my dad inside this classroom painting. I go, Dad, hey, what are you doing? Painting. Okay, well, I'll see you later. See ya. <laughs> So I go to practice, I get home, and I go, Mom, what the heck is Dad doing painting in, in, at the school? And she goes, oh, he's, he's trying to pay off some of your tuition by doing some work around the school. A big story that I didn't know about. I only knew the little story that my dad was there painting. And tonight's story is kind of like this. You know, the apostles have their little stories. I mean, I don't know how anything's a little story with Jesus, but they, but they have their little stories with Jesus. And there's a bigger story behind the scene that we're going to talk about tonight. In fact, we're going to get to the biggest story of all, and um, we'll see where that leads us. Jesus is discipling the apostles for his entire ministry. He's teaching them. Everything he does in front of them is for the purpose of teaching them something. And we're going to see tonight how he begins unfolding this very big story for them. And we're going to see how dramatic this story is, and we're going to see how it impacts us even today. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 9, verse, uh, verses 2 to 9. It's not going to be up on the screen because it's just too much to put up on a screen. So listen closely, and if you want to follow along, it's Mark chapter 9, verse 2 to 9. After six days... Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led him up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is God's word. Father, I pray for tonight, I pray that you would 
Allow my words to echo accurately what you would want me to say. And I pray for the hearers, whether they're here or whether they're watching us online. In Christ's name, amen. You ever read this story and uh, thought, why is this here? Why is this story here? I mean, they go back down the mountain. They go back to their, the narrative that we're going to go through over the next coming weeks. Why is this here? You know, the transfiguration shows up. It's unanticipated. It's uh, like a great interruption. You ever watch movies where there's this twist in the plot right in the middle of the movie, and you're like, what the heck? That's kind of what I see this as. It's almost too dramatic to be true. You know, the apostles often appealed to eyewitness testimony. They talked a lot about the resurrection and how it was witnessed by a number of different people, and they make it very clear about these eyewitnesses, the center of Christendom, the resurrection. Now, in Peter's second letter, he only wrote two books of the Bible, two letters. He writes about being an eyewitness. But let's look at what he claims to be an eyewitness of. We did not follow cunningly devised fables. What a start. Cunningly devised? He's probably thinking, we're not smart enough to come up with something like this. And we do not follow cunningly devised fables because we're not interested in following something that's false. We're not going to give up our livelihoods. We're not going to go to prison. We're not going to be tortured. We're not going to be killed for a cunningly devised fable. This is his introduction to what he was an eyewitness of. Let's continue. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Interesting. Peter writes two letters in the New Testament, and when he talks about being an eyewitness of something, it's not the resurrection. It's the transfiguration. The resurrection is a big story. But the bigger story is the glorification of of Christ. The bigger story is Christ, majestic, in glory, the divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That's the bigger story. This is where we end up in glory with the glorified Christ. Peter was allowed to see behind the veil along with James and John. This, whatever dimension that they were allowed access to, to see this, 
take place. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this event. The only one that doesn't record it like this is John. He was there, but he alludes to it, and we'll see that. Now, to understand better why this event took place, you know, the question, why is this here? We need to, we need to know the context. Excuse me, I drink a lot when I'm up here. All right. Up to this point, the Gospels, what has Jesus been doing? We're going to go back a little bit, just briefly. He's been talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. And Jesus begins to unpack that for his disciples, for his followers. He begins demonstrating his authority, his kingly authority over the physical world. Healing the sick, the blind, the lame, the deaf. Walking on water, multiplying loaves of bread and fish. Calming the storm with his words. He has authority over the physical order. He shows his authority over the spiritual realm. He casts out demons. He gives authority to his followers to cast out demons. When demons see him, they cry out. They cry out not to be harmed. They know who's in charge. And he shows this authority to his followers. He's teaching with authority in the synagogues. He's challenging the spiritual elite because of their hypocrisy. He's identifying with sinners and the marginalized. He's exercising the prerogatives of God. He's forgiving sin. And he's identifying with titles that only belong to the Messiah. Indeed, last week, the apostles are recognizing that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Remember that? Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Okay. (laughs) All right. Peter has recognized the big question. We've reached a little bit of a climax here. He's realized who Jesus was. He understood the big story. Or did he? Because Jesus then does something that the apostles were not expecting. He begins to tell them a bigger part of a bigger story. He begins to teach them that he's going to die. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. He didn't beat around the bush. He was very clear what's going to happen to him. He is going to die. Can you imagine the apostles' reaction to that? That did not compute in their little narrative in what they thought was the story. It doesn't fit in with their narrative about the Messiah. Never, Lord, Peter said, this shall never happen to you. 
Peter's small story, his little narrative, has been interrupted. Jesus' death just doesn't fit in with their expectations. They've already been starting to imagine an eternal kingdom, free from oppression, free from Roman rule, their immediate oppressors, living under the kingship of their beloved leader. You know, we got to give these guys some slack, right? But Jesus didn't give them any slack. And Jesus let Peter know on the severest of terms, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Peter is focused on a smaller story. He's focused on the things of men. He's missing the bigger story. And you know, we can't blame Peter because what would he be familiar with up to this point? The pain of oppression? The story of a deliverer, a Messiah who was going to come? He might have been familiar with the Old Testament prophecies that, that talk about this coming Messiah. He was a fisherman, probably not much of a theological scholar, but he, he probably went to synagogue and heard other people talking about him. Let's take a look at a couple of these prophecies. The first one from the book of Isaiah, 700 years before Christ. By the way, I think these prophecies are absolutely shocking. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And from the book of Daniel, about 600 years or so before the time of Christ, you know, Jesus called himself the son of man more than he called himself anything. Sure, that emphasized his humanity, but it's emphasizing something else. And let's take a look at that. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Eternal kingdom. Never destroyed. What good is a dead king of an eternal kingdom? Peter has a gap in his understanding of the Messiah's mission. The bigger story was way bigger than an earthly Messiah coming to deal with earthly enemies to set up an earthly rule. This bigger story exists because man is not right with God. Man is not right with God and God was going to do something about it. From the opening pages of Genesis, man is in rebellion against the just judge of the universe, against the creator, the creature rebelling against their creator, and God will be just, and he sets forth a plan where his justice will be satisfied. 
and at the same time bring these rebellers back into relationship with him. God's nuclear bomb in this cosmic battle was the death of the Messiah. Peter did not see that one coming. And that's a big problem. These disciples were going to be the messengers of the bigger story. They needed to understand why the Messiah had to die. Their failure to see it was a big problem. And Jesus, their discipler, their teacher, went into teaching mode. They had a lot more to learn. And thus we get to this story about the transfiguration. First, why Peter, James, and John? Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Um, The Bible doesn't say why Peter, James, and John, but Peter, James, and John became the central leaders, if you will, of the early church. Jesus had a very close relationship with them. He knew very well that if any of his apostles needed to understand his mission, it was these three. And so he would take them often on things like this, these more intimate, profound moments of Jesus to teach them. Why a high mountain? And he led them up a high mountain. The Bible doesn't say why he led them up a high mountain, but great biblical events happen on high mountains. God often reveals himself to his prophets, to his messengers on high mountains, to Moses, to Elijah, to Abraham. And now Jesus takes his messengers up to this high mountain. Jesus is transfigured. That word that we get, the Greek word that we um, translate as transfigured, is metamorpho. What, what word do you think that's the root of? Metamorphosis. What, what do you think about when you think metamorphosis? Okay. Butterflies. I, I think I heard someone say butterflies. We see the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. And it's awesome because that butterfly is a completely different physical structure of that caterpillar. There is nothing left of that caterpillar. Jesus was metamorphosed, transfigured before them. What information do we have? Let's look at the changes happening to Jesus. Mark says his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I mean, it's, he's having trouble describing what it, how it looked. Matthew says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Luke says the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. What's going on here? Peter, James, and John are led into another I've heard it described a dimension, a heavenly dimension. They're they're seeing behind the veil. 
They're seeing behind this veil of Jesus' humanity, and they're seeing him, the exalted second person of the Trinity. They're seeing him as a divine. John the Apostle writes about this. John, who was there? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. They would never see it again on earth. This was the only time they ever saw it. It wasn't until Jesus was glorified after his ascension and when the apostles died and were with him that they would see him glorified again. A glory that Jesus had with the Father from eternity past When Jesus prayed just before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's what the apostles were seeing at the transfiguration. The glory that Jesus had with the Father from eternity past. What else would the apostles have learned here in this experience? Not only the divinity of Christ, and let me tell you, they've only seen Jesus in his humanity. They've walked dusty roads with him. They they wore clothing, regular common clothing. They carried on like humans carry on with day-to-day life. Can you imagine how they felt seeing a glorified, eternal being? I, 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 I can't find words, frankly, to even begin to describe that. I probably would have used the word bleach. <laughs> How do you find words to describe that? What else would they have learned from this, though? The exalted Christ, the majestic Christ, his radiance. They would see the extent of his humility. How much he humbled himself to become a man, a mere man. Paul would later write, This Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. How do you come up with an analogy? I, I thought, I don't know, uh, Bill Gates. Let's say Bill Gates gave all his money away uh, to, the, to the poor. And then he went and lived in a studio apartment somewhere because he didn't have any more money. I think we might look at that and go, he's either gone crazy or we're looking at that going, wow, wow. I don't know. We can come up with all kinds of analogies, I guess, to try to compare the divine second person of the Trinity becoming a man. The creator humbling himself to be amongst us like one created. It's hard to describe. In this moment, they truly saw the extent to which Christ had humbled himself. A deeper appreciation of the bigger story, the divine becoming human. Okay. We're told that Elijah and Moses are talking with him. 
Why are Elijah and Moses talking with him? The Bible doesn't say. So we have to connect a few dots and we come up with the most reasonable speculation that we can. By the way, I, I heard someone describe, how did they know it was Elijah and Moses? How did Peter, James, and John know it was Elijah and Moses? And this one commentator said, well, you know, when we're there in glory with everybody, we're going to know who everybody is. I'm not going to go up to you and say, I'm sorry, what was your name again? We're going to know. They knew, they knew it was Elijah and Moses. These two figures, uh, by the way, represented the entire Old Testament. Elijah was a representative, if you will, of the prophets. Moses, of course, was representative of the law. And often when Jesus would talk about the scriptures speaking about him, he would refer to the prophets and the law, or the prophets and Moses, testifying about him. And here we go. We've got a prophet, one of the greatest prophets, and Moses, talking to him, testifying about something. We're going to talk about that in a second. You're familiar with the story after the crucifixion of these two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus? They were walking and talking about the horrible events that took place with the crucifixion. They started talking about this rumor uh, that, that he rose from the dead or something. But they're, they're just totally uh, depressed. And then a third person shows up. It happens to be Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus. And he begins talking to them and explained to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was written in all the scriptures about himself. So Elijah and Moses are witness to everything said in the scripture about Jesus. Now what were Moses and Elijah talking about with Jesus? Mark's gospel doesn't say. Um, but, and only Luke's gospel tells us of the topic discussed between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished, about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay, they're talking about his future departure in Jerusalem. They're talking about his death. The word that's translated here, departure, actually could be translated exodus. They're talking about his exodus. Now maybe, maybe there's a connection with Moses and the exodus. What was Moses' exodus? It was the great story when the people were brought out of bondage from Egypt through that final plague where the angel of death came through Egypt Moses had told the people to take the blood of a lamb and spread that blood on the doorposts. And when God came through and saw that blood, he would pass over that house. But if there was a home without the blood of the lamb, then God's judgment would come on that house. And that was the plague that resulted in the Hebrews being set free. The exodus was begun. Through the death of these lambs, Jesus, the Lamb of God, dying on the cross at Passover, not a coincidence. And through his death, he begins an exodus 
where he takes us out of bondage from sin, leads us, if you will, through the desert of life where we get to know God and grow in relationship with him ultimately to bring us into the promised land. Maybe that was the connection that we were supposed to make. Maybe that was the learning moment for the apostles. Then we get to this rather odd thing in the middle of the story. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Another version says he didn't know what he was talking about. I like to picture these guys having, uh, you know, campfires later, going, Peter, tell that story again. When you, when you said that thing about these tents or these shelters. Uh, no, I don't want to tell that story. I'm stupid. I had a good friend. He's watching from Columbia right now. He said, you know, maybe these tents were like military in fashion. Because these guys thought, okay, now we're going to get rocking and rolling here. Okay? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say why Peter said that, but he did. But it, we are told he didn't know what he was talking about. And then we're told that a bright cloud suddenly appeared. And they heard the voice of God. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now about this cloud, um, the cloud was a sign that God was in their midst. When God drew close to people, he often did so in a cloud. He was concealed. We see examples of that uh, in the Exodus God came down on a cloud on Mount Sinai. There was great lightning and, and rumbling, and the people didn't want to go near it. They were afraid. And we see other examples of the cloud from which God spoke. And there's a couple things here. First notice what is said, this is my son, listen to him. God is talking to Peter, James, and John. They they had to have been absolutely terrified. And listen to him. Listen to what he's telling you. When he tells you he's going to die, listen to what he's saying. Pay attention. Or maybe it was listen to him. Don't listen to your own voices in your head. Don't listen to the false prophets that are going to come in the future. Don't listen to the false religions that are going to pop up and deny what my son is going to accomplish at his cross. All world religions deny the efficacy of the cross of Christ. All world religions, of course, except Christianity. Second, notice their terror. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified. Whenever you see a story of man coming in the presence of the divine, they are terrified. Imagine their feelings. Try to put yourself in their shoes. The created, the creature before its creator, the lawbreaker before the lawgiver, the sinner before his judge. Imagine that fear. The scripture tells us 
that fear has to do with punishment. This is the Apostle John writing. The fear has to do with punishment. They were terrified. Peter has felt this terror before. He's felt the fear of judgment before. You know that story when they're out all night trying to catch fish, they can't catch any, they come in, they see Jesus, Jesus says, throw your net on the, off to the side, they're like, okay. So they throw the net off the side and they catch this <laughs> humongous catch of fish. A miracle had clearly taken place, and when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Fear, sin, punishment. When men or women come face to face with God, they sense their guilt. As Christians, when we read the scriptures, when we pray, do we not sometimes feel a conviction of our sin? Of course we do. Peter couldn't take it. In this story with the fish catch. Away from me, Lord. Go, go, go away from me, Lord. Whew, I am a sinful man. I cannot be in your presence. Imagine how he felt here at the transfiguration. And now here it's not just Jesus by a lake on a boat. It's, it's, the, it's the glorified Jesus with his Father. God the Father. But, and, and here is where this story gets much bigger. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. How is it possible for them not to be afraid? There's only one possible way. Perfect love casts out fear. I want you to imagine that you're going to come face to face with God in 60 seconds. You can close your eyes if you want. You're going to come face to face with him in about 45 seconds. How do you feel? How you feel, how you answer that question, how would you feel if you are going to stand in the presence of God says a lot about how you understand the gospel. It says a lot about how well you understand the bigger story. Jesus' death on the cross was an act of perfect love. And perfect love cast out all. Have you, have you ever so loved somebody that you 
or sacrificial towards them? Or have you ever seen someone else so love somebody as evidenced by their acts of sacrifice? You know, um, she so loved her children, so loved them that she, or he so loved his wife that he, or that soldier so loved his, his platoon that he, Anything that follows that phrasing, so love, is always sacrificial. Well, we are told, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. A perfect love, the soul love of God, a love that he wants you to understand so that you will not be afraid, that all fear would be cast out, no judgment. The perfect love of God, the soul love of God, all sin has been paid. All judgment that's been stored up for your sin has been taken, the full brunt of it, on Christ. There is no more judgment for you. No more punishment for you. Jesus took it all, the great and perfect love of God. Why do Gina and I sing songs with Harper? And make eggies because we love her. Why did my dad paint in my classroom that day? Because he loved me. Why did Jesus come and die on a cross? Because God loved me. Love is always the bigger story. And the love of God for you is the biggest story you'll ever be a part of. For those of you uh, that have not experienced this perfect love, the forgiveness of God through Christ, maybe you have so many questions, maybe you're a skeptic, but you're listening. Well, I want to assure you of something. I'm going to borrow from Peter. We do not follow cunningly devised fables. You can't make this up. The truth is that God sent Jesus to die on a cross to pay for your sin, satisfy his demand for justice, for your rebellion. Do you feel that your sin is too great? You ever felt that way? There are things you've never told anybody. You can't imagine telling people. You ever think your sin is too great? Well, then you don't understand who died for you, my friend. The exalted Son of God, 
The second person of the Trinity died for you. When he said it is finished from the cross, it was finished. Sin extinguished. No more judgment. No reason any longer to fear. Come embrace the bigger story of the greatest love you'll ever experience. To my fellow brothers and sisters, Peter, James, and John came back down that mountain with Jesus. They had a lot more to learn. They had decades of being his messenger to the lost, to the world. And we're together in this. I'm going to close with a quote from John, who was there. Peace I leave you, I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Amen? Amen.